you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Timothy, and by the grace of God, uh, Steve Weibel was here last week, and I just happened to get a cold and almost lost my voice, and so it was just perfect timing to get a cold, and I was trying to be thankful as it slowed me down. As I was studying this text, I kept thinking of different verses, and, uh, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know why. I was thinking, you know, this reminds me of the curse. And I was thinking, this is strange. And then I was thinking, you know, this reminds me of, this reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16. And this reminds me of John 3.16. And as I started going through here, I thought, there are a lot of good 316s in the Bible. And uh, so I did this little search, and even though the, our chapters and verse references are not inspired in the Bible, they were added later so we could kind of get around easier, I found some interesting things, and I thought I'd share them with you. I just went through every book of the Bible and looked up... You know, that book, and if it had a chapter 316, I looked at it. And sure enough, in Genesis 316, talks about the woman being cursed uh, after the fall. In Joshua 316, that is the significant text, where the waters of the Jordan are divided like the Red Sea and they walk through. In Daniel 3.16, it's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand face to face to Nebuchadnezzar, who has heated up the fiery furnace, and they tell him... We do not need to answer you concerning this matter. For our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. In Joel 3.16, it is a classic text on the day of the Lord and the Lord's fury on that day. And it says, and the Lord roars from Mount Zion and the earth trembles. In Malachi 3.16, it talks about the book of remembrance being written for those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. In Matthew 3.16 is the text where Jesus coming up out of the water after being baptized, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends upon Him. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist predicts one will come after Him who is greater than He is, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Of course, most of us know John 3.16, that great promise of God's manifested love in His Son, crying out that whosoever believes in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. And then there is 1 Corinthians 3.16, which tells us that we are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. There is Galatians 3.16, which tells us that Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. There is Ephesians 3.16, where it is Paul's prayer that we might be strengthened with power by God's Spirit in the inner man according to the riches of His glory. There is Colossians 3.16, which exhorts us to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And there is 2 Timothy 3.16, the classic text on the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. There is 1 John 3.16, which says that because Christ has laid down his life for us, we should lay our lives down for other believers. And then there is Revelation 3.16, the well-known 
rebuke to the Laodicean church where Jesus says, because your deeds are neither warm nor hot, but because they are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, those are some significant texts. And I was amazed to find that many key texts that just happened to be referenced in 316. But out of all those texts, and as significant as they are, and even as significant as John 3.16 is, and maybe 2 Timothy 3.16, I believe the text before us is probably the most theologically significant text, maybe in all the Bible. Far more than John 3.16, because it encompasses everything that John 3.16 encompasses, and yet even more. It is a text that is just loaded with doctrinal goodies, just packed full of comprehensive truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this text this morning... I hope you see just the greatness and the grandeur of this text. I was struggling all week on whether I wanted to preach six sermons on this text or just one. And uh, I thought, you know, six sermons might postpone things a little too far. So I decided I would finish it in just one sermon. And so we are going to go through it quickly. As was already read, if you have your Bibles and you're looking at 1 Timothy 3, we'll start in verse 14. Paul has just discussed the roles of women and men in the church, the qualifications of elders and deacons and women who serve. And then he says this in verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Then he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In verse 14, Paul reveals his heart desire to come to Timothy, but he realizes he may be delayed. So he gives us the whole purpose statement of the book. I write so you know how to conduct yourself in God's household, which is God's church, the church of the living God. And he defines the church as the pillar and support of the truth. That is the primary function of the church. To uphold, to proclaim, to raise up God's truth in the world. And then he gets down to this common confession. We learned last time that the true church is not our church. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. He is the living God, not the dead God. He is the one who purchased for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to redeem for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And because this is his church... He gets to tell his church 
what it's supposed to do. He is, he is the one who can declare to the church its purpose, and he is the head. And he says, his church, his true church, is a pillar and support of the truth. We also learned that the information in 1 Timothy, though directed to Timothy in specific, is really a general cry to all churches in every age. This is an inspired letter of the Apostle Paul, which means Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was moved by the Holy Spirit, and he spoke from God. This is what is called the doctrine of inspiration. It means that God so superintended human authors that he used their own personalities, he used their own experiences, he used their own struggles, their own emotions... All of these personal things about them, he allowed them to write down their thoughts and so superintended their thoughts that the end product was his word, perfect, infallible, without error, unchangeable, and the only rule of faith and practice and the only source of objectionable truth um, for all the ages. It is his word and his word as the primary author. Sure, the other human authors were authors with a little a, but God is the big A author. And this is his word. And so when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And this is why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It is the word of truth that the church exists to be a pillar in support of, to uphold it, to proclaim it, to model it to the world that men might be saved and might give glory to God. And at the heart of God's revelation, as you go through the scriptures, there is this theme. It is a focused theme that just appears like this red thread all the way through the black and white pages of scripture. It is called the Christological principle. The principle that says that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the major redemptive theme throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that thread was put there by Christ. Jesus is the core. He is the hub of the wheel. And the scriptures speak of him. If you remember when he was on the road to Emmaus, uh, the disciples were, a couple of his disciples, after he'd been crucified, after um, somebody said he rose from the dead, and these guys were walking down the road, and they were all bummed out, and they were all confused, and they all were thinking, you know, what's going on here? And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to them, and they didn't know it was Jesus. They didn't know who it was. And Jesus said, hey, you know, what are you talking about? And they looked at him in amazement and said, Hey, where have you been? Haven't you heard what's been going on in Jerusalem these days? Little did they know that he was there. He was the one crucified, but they didn't know it was him. And so he began to explain to them, Luke 22 says, or Luke 24 says, from all the scriptures those things concerning himself, showing that he had to die and be crucified and rise again on the third day. And then their eyes were open and he vanished. 
The great theme often referred to as the Christological principle is the topic of our text today. As Paul comes to this pivotal foundational statement in 1 Timothy, he wants us to know the grand theme of the entire Bible. And as we look at this today, we are going to find a hymn. This was a hymn sung in the early church. And I like that. This gives us some great insight into what the content of hymns were like in the early church. And even though it's just like one stanza, it teaches us the kind of hymns or songs that God is pleased with. Many contemporary songs are purely man-centered. They talk about the worshiper. They are directed at the worshiper. They talk about how we feel, what we might do. And in reality, they worship men rather than God. You see, it used to be that hymns were written by pastors and theologians. Men with great theological training would pen hymns for the church. But now, most of the contemporary songs are written by people who have little or no theological training. And they are writing hymns so they can make money. But here we have a glimpse of a true God-honoring hymn. And so as we look at this, Paul calls it the common confession. And even though we only look at a fragment, it is a significant fragment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this common confession and Note that as we go through here, each line contains a passive verb. It is something that happened to Jesus during his incarnation. Every one of these things happened to Jesus. Another interesting thing about this little chunk of a hymn is that it is composed of three couplets. And each of them has a contrast, and actually a kind of cumulative contrast, some forward and some backwards. And this is what I mean by that. In the first line, he talks about he who was revealed in the flesh. He starts with something worldly, the human nature, and then he progresses to something heavenly, was vindicated in the spirit. Then the second couplet, he starts out with something heavenly, seen by angels, and then moves to the earthly, proclaimed among the nations. Then he goes back to the earthly, believed on in the world, and then goes to the heavenly, taken up in glory. And it, I was telling, I think it was Justin, that this thing is so loaded with just little observations that it was real tempting just to spend, you know, 45 minutes just noticing things in here. There's chiasms in here if you're thinking, what's that? Oh, it's just all kinds of fun stuff. It's just, it's just, it's just a masterpiece and many people have written many things about it and it is still uh, unfathomed in its depths. Now the word... Great, when he says great is the mystery of godliness, he says by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This word great is the word mega. And some of you, you know, junior hires probably didn't know you knew Greek. But man, this is like mega good. This is a mega truth. It means large, huge, significant, great. And what is great? He says the, the mystery, in the Greek, it's the mysterion. 
It is a mystery because it is a truth never before revealed until the New Testament or never before revealed to the degree that it is now revealed in the New Testament. He says, Mega is the Mysterion, and then he says, of Eusebia. And Eusebia means godliness, godly piety or devotion. He says, everybody knows in the church that there is this mega mystery of godliness. And then he's going to tell us what it is. So we're going to look at each of these six lines and see why this little common confession, this fragment of an early church hymn is so significant. He begins to say, He who was revealed in the flesh. The he again referring to Jesus, God incarnate. And this line is talking about the incarnation. And that's the fancy word we use to describe Jesus becoming a man or God becoming the man Christ Jesus. God being made flesh. Do you remember what John says, the beginning of his gospel? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then in verse 14, he says this about the Word which was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the great beginning of the mystery of faith, that God, the Word, became Flesh, In other words, he became a man. And this is what Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 7.14, didn't he? When he said, and a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name, what? God with us, Emmanuel. And then later on in chapter 9, verse 6, he speaks of this child who would be born, who had some pretty significant names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he says that one child, all the governments would rest on his shoulder for all eternity. The source of godliness is God. He is the fountainhead of godliness, the standard of godliness, and the definition of godliness. Without God, there is no godliness. Because in order to be like God, you must have God to be like. And Jesus was that manifestation of God in the flesh so we could look at him and see what God was like. That is why the Gospels are so valuable. I love that statement in John 14, 8. You remember that? Philip and the disciples are sitting around the upper room and and Philip says, uh, Lord... Show us the Father, and that will be enough. And I imagine Jesus kind of gave him the, where have you been, look. Philip, Philip, what do you mean, show us the Father? He told him, Philip, he who has seen me has seen what? The Father. That is amazing. Jesus was saying, Philip, when you look at me, when you listen to me, when you watch me do things, you are watching God. The author of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's who Jesus is. So the first part of this great mystery of godliness is to understand that Jesus was God incarnate. God made flesh, the exact representation of God. If you see Jesus, you see the Father. And you must believe this in order to be saved. You must believe this in order to be godly. He told the Pharisees, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then right after that, in the very next phrase, he said, and I tell you, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He said it twice. The second line continues saying he was vindicated in the spirit. The word vindicated might also be translated justified. Now, you might ask yourself this. What was it about the incarnation that that needed to be justified or vindicated. Well, think about this. Let's say, you know, you're going along along the street sometime and there's this guy and he's done some incredible things and and you're thinking, no, this is impressive. And then he tells you he's God. What do you tell that guy? You You are a nut. You need treatment. Shock treatment. High voltage. Why? Because it's it's... It's ludicrous. You're just a man. Well, think about Jesus. He comes to earth and he just—he grew up in Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's, we know you. You're Joseph's son. You fixed my roof. What, what do you mean, God? He need vindicated. He need justified. And what justified, one of the things that vindicated or justified or proved that Jesus was God incarnate was the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God working in and through him. You see, way back in Isaiah chapter 11, there is this great little text. And a lot of times we just pass over it. It speaks of the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of of the Messiah. And this is what it says, Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. That was to be the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the righteous branch. He was to have the Spirit on him, just empowering him and enduing him with many miraculous things. And one of the ways the Jews could know that Jesus was the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, is if they would just watch his life and see if the Holy Spirit was working mightily through him. Did Jesus have supernatural wisdom? And understanding? Sure, he silenced all his critics. Never had they heard anyone speak and teach as Jesus did. Did Jesus have a healthy fear or reverence of God, a holy zeal, 
that made him lose faith, face in all the temple as he went in there on two different occasions and beat the money changers, hit them with whips, overturned them tables, and drove them out of the temple yard like no other. Was he able to look into men's hearts and know their thoughts? Yes. As a matter of fact, he was so equipped that he would answer people's thoughts before they would even say anything. Do you remember what happened to him at the very beginning of his ministry? He went down to the Jordan River, and Matthew 3.16 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and they saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And all those witnesses saw that. And what could that tell them? This is the Messiah. Later, Jesus told the Pharisees after casting a demon out of the man, but if I cast demons out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when they attributed his works to Satan, Jesus didn't say, oh, you've blasphemed me. He says, no. Just two verses later, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Jesus, when he did miracles, Jesus, when he raised the dead, when he gave sight to the blind, when he cast out demons, he was showing that he was the Messiah with the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit upon him. And the Holy Spirit was vindicating him as the Holy One of God. Yet the real clincher was not at Jesus' baptism, not his wisdom, his understanding, not his ability to read men's hearts, but the resurrection. That was the final clincher. That is hard to do. Raise yourself. Romans 1, 3-4, speaking of Christ, says this, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, listen to this, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection was proof positive that God's Spirit had anointed this man and that he was the Son of God, he was God incarnate, and he was the one to be reckoned with. The third line in this hymn, notice what it says, is that he was seen by angels. This is contrasted with believed on in the world. Seen by angels, the heavenly, contrasted with believed on in the world, the earthly. Now, why do you think that it was significant that Jesus was seen by angels? Well, of course, he was seen by angels before he became a man. But what about after that? What would that mean? Well, it would be further verification that he was who he claimed to be. I mean, if holy angels appeared, and if holy angels interacted with Jesus, it would let us know for certain that he was the Holy One of God. And that is exactly what happened. The angels were keenly interested in the Incarnation. Uh, You can imagine them uh, worshiping God for since creation, since they were created. 
And they were watching and wondering and they were just serving God all the time. And then to have God become a man lower than they were for a time and to live on the earth, a sin-cursed earth full of wretched, sinful men to be clothed in humanity for 33 years and to allow those people to persecute him and crucify him. God incarnate. They watched that and they watched that with great interest. The scriptures tell us that they were there at his birth. Remember the shepherds? Remember how they said glory to God in the highest? They were there when he had to flee to Egypt. They were there when he was told to go back to Israel from Egypt. They ministered to him after his temptation. Jesus, towards the end, right before he was crucified, said that he could call upon the Father who would send 12 legions of angels to rescue him in a moment. That's 72,000 angels. After being crucified, an angel rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb. When the women came to see the tomb, they saw the angel. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, two angels appeared and said to the disciples... Why are you standing there looking up into the air? I always find that a little humorous. Because usually you don't see people go up like that. And they said, this Jesus whom you have seen go up will come in the exact same way. And Zechariah says in Zechariah 14, he will come back to the exact same place, the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus was seen by angels, but not only holy angels. Also fallen angels, demons, confirmed who he was. In in Luke, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 34, when Jesus had entered the synagogue, there was this demon-possessed man in there, which is an interesting thing. Here's this demon-possessed man. Was he staying away from the hub of religion? No, he was in the synagogue. It's where Satan likes to be, sitting in the front row, being there, watching. But when Jesus approaches, this demon-possessed man sees him. And the first thing he says is, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, you can imagine being a Jew standing in the temple. And Jesus is walking in, and all of a sudden, this guy cries out, I know who you are! And everybody's going, who? The Holy One of God. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. So he was seen by angels. And those angels show us that he was Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, the Holy One, and the Messiah. Yet not only was he seen by angels, the fourth line affirms that he was proclaimed among the nations. The word proclaimed is usually translated preach or preached. It is the word caruso, to be preached among the nations. The word nations describes all people, all tribes, all tongues, all ethnic groups. It's plural, meaning all peoples of all places. And this did not start 
at Pentecost. This started in Genesis 3.15 when it was promised that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. It happened in Genesis 22 when God said to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It happened in Genesis 49 when Jacob, when dealing out his his blessings to his son, said to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. It happened in Deuteronomy 18 when the prophet was promised and through the Psalms and through Samuel and through the suffering servant of Isaiah, Jesus has been proclaimed and is still being proclaimed. He was proclaimed by John the Baptist. He himself claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. The disciples preached Jesus after the church was born. The apostles preached Jesus. And that is how the message of the cross has been passed down from age to age, from heart to heart, from church to church, from generation to generation, through preaching. Preaching is God's method to transport the great mystery of godliness. And that is why Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. There's this, uh, there's this false teaching going out today that you don't need to know Jesus. You don't need to know about Jesus. You don't need to hear the Bible. And all you need to do is be sincere and God will save you. That is a lie. Listen to what this says. The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But he says, to those who are being saved, both Jews and Gentiles... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is how God has chosen to spread the great mystery of godliness. Romans 10, 14 chimes in. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And the answer is they can't. How will they believe on him in whom they have heard? And the answer is they can't. And how will they hear without a preacher? And the answer is they can't. And this is what Paul is talking about. In verse 15, when he says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And you are the church. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are the church. And you are to proclaim Jesus. You are to preach him. You are to tell people about him, proclaim him, herald him. Share the gospel with those you run into who need salvation. These truths are for you and I. And we are commanded to take these truths and share them with the world. He has been proclaimed among the nations And it has caused a great impact in the world. And that is what the next line is about. Notice what the text says. It says, he was believed on in the world. The word believed is talking about true saving faith, not just head knowledge. True saving faith. There are many who would say, well, I believe in Jesus. But they believe in Jesus like the demons believe in Jesus when James says even the demons believe. They have a demon faith. 
The demons believed Jesus. They cried out, oh, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And many people in the church today, many who profess to know Jesus, have that same kind of faith. And the problem is, is that demon faith cannot save you. It cannot save you. You do not become a Christian by just agreeing with the facts about Jesus. Demons believe that. Many people agree with the facts. And someone may think to themselves, well, then how how can you know the difference? I mean, if one believes in the facts and another believes in the facts, then what is the difference between true saving faith and demon faith? How can I know what kind of faith I have? Because I believe in Jesus. I mean, I come to church. I, I even read my Bible. I pray to God. Well, let me just give you some manifestations of true saving faith. Let me give you seven of them. And all of these, but the last one, come from the book of 1 John, which is has a purpose and a theme to answer this question. So read that book over and over again, and you'll begin to see why he says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write you these things, everything preceding chapter 5, verse 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he lays down all of these tests, all of these criterias, so that those who think they know Jesus can know for certain they know Jesus. And those who think they know Jesus but do not know Jesus can discover that they don't know Jesus and repent. And this is some of the things he says. In 1 John 1.9, he tells us that true believers confess their sins. What that means is they agree with God. They agree with God that they are sinners, that they are wretched, that they are poor and blind and naked, as Jesus said. That they can't do anything to please God, that all their deeds are but filthy rags. This is how true believers see themselves as sinners. Sinners. And they confess that sin. That doesn't just mean that they agree with it, but that they agree with God that he is right and they are wrong. And that they repent, which means to have a change of mind, to turn around and to pursue God. In his ways. That's what it means. So ask yourself, do I confess my sins? Or do I hide them? Second, do you love others? One of the things that 1 John 1.10 tells us is that those who know God love others. Now I'm not talking about some weak sentimentalism. I am not talking about tolerating other people's rebellion against God. And calling that love, that is hate. Ask yourself this, do others see me or do I see myself as one who loves people enough to share the gospel with them? Who loves other people enough to share with them the great mystery of godliness? To risk friendships, to risk family relations... To risk personal comfort to tell people the truth. That is true love. True love is one that is willing to go to another believer and say, you know, I see some sin in your life and it's not right. That is what true love is. 
Do you sacrifice your time and resources for others? This is love. The third thing we read from John is, do you keep God's commandments? When you look at your life, do you say this? Is obedience the pattern of my life? Not that you never sin, because he just said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But what is the pattern? What is your life characterized by? Are you characterized by constant rebellion? Do you have these secret unconfessed sins that you know are there, that you refuse to deal with, that you don't want to repent of, you don't want to turn from? This is what John says in 1 John 2.4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He says in 1 John 3.8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. He says in 1 John 3.10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We live in an age where the church has become very tolerant to sin, where the church accepts sin, where the church encourages people to sin. I just heard of this one pastor. These people said we went to this pastor and we were going to do marriage counseling. And we were talking to him and he said, you know, um, have you guys been living or sleeping together? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, that's okay. It's not okay. It's wrong. If it looks like a dog and it acts like a dog and it barks like a dog and it eats like a dog, it's a dog. It's not a sheep. And just because dogs may lie with the sheep for a few hours a week, that does not make them sheep. They must have the fruit of repentance. Fourth, do you use your worldly things to minister to others? Listen to what John says in 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the implied answer is, it does not. It does not. Saving faith produces a generous giving heart. That is what saving faith produces. You cannot love God and money if you are unwilling to pry yourself away from your comfort to minister to others. God's love cannot abide in you. Fifth, do you love fellowshipping with the saints? There are those who come to church and they think to themselves, yeah, you know, I fellowship Really, they come and they sit and then they escape quickly. They don't talk to anybody, except maybe high visitation times, they can't get away. <laughs> and there are those who do everything they can to not get involved. They don't want to be involved in Bible study. They don't want to hang around at church potlucks. They don't want to go to any of the functions of the church because the reason is, is they get convicted. They're convicted inside because they know they're not living for God. They know They aren't walking with the Lord. They know they have unconfessed sin in their lives. But they're deceiving themselves into thinking they are believers when they are not. They are not. Because true saints who have true saving faith love to fellowship with the saints. Six, how is your speech? What do you talk about? This is an indicator of where you're at. I mean, you come in here and throw on your church lingo and jargon. Yeah, you know, propitiation and the uh, satisfaction of the atonement and uh, the order of the divine decrees. 
when you're in the foyer, and then when you go out, you just speak like the devil at your work and at your job. The mouth, out of the mouth proceeds that which fills the heart. Do you gossip? Do you slander? Do you spread rumors? Do you talk about others to do them harm? If that is what you are characterized by, don't think you're saved. In 1 John 5, 4, 5, it says, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Jesus said, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What does your mouth speak? What do you talk about? When you get together with people, what do you talk about? Do you talk about the church? Do you talk about your walk with the Lord? Do you talk about what you're doing in your ministry? Or do you talk about the world and the things of the world and that's all? Now, those things are okay. But if the other things are not there, how does the love of God abide in you? The seventh is this. True saving faith will transform your life. It will transform your life. Are you a new creature? Have old things passed away and all things become new? Are the scriptures just the most powerful thing you have ever read? When you read the Bible, does it just hammer you? Does it convict you? Does it just bring incredible joy? Does it just marvel you? Do you talk with God off and on all day long? Do you see the world through his perspective as you're going around, as you're driving around? Are you constantly taking the scriptures and comparing it to everything in your world? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you willing to forsake all others to take up your cross and to follow him? Jesus said, if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be my disciple. This is the fruit of true saving faith. And this is the fruit that is produced by those who believe the message proclaimed among the nations. False faith will no more change a person than sugar cubes will cure a person of pancreatic cancer. Just because you profess, that does not save you. False faith is only skim deep, but unbelief goes clear to the bone. If your faith is not changing you, if it is not transforming you, if you cannot look back and say, I am different from when I was three months ago, I am more like Christ, I am more involved, I am serving harder, I am giving more, you're probably not saved. And if you tell yourself, well, I am too, I'm just in rebellion, don't kid yourself. You are probably just like the seed sown among the rocky soil or among the weeds and the persecution and the worries of the world choke the word out and it becomes unfruitful. True saving faith always produces a crop. Jesus said some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but it always produces a crop. I mean, even the, the man on the cross, you know, we like to use him for everything. The guy's only been a believer for moments, right? He's hanging up there next to Jesus. You know, well, what, 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 what can he do? Well, it's his fruit. Well, think about it. His first fruit was repentance. He repented. We deserve to be here. His second thing was his defense of Jesus. That man has done nothing. And then his third was a rebuke to the other guy. How dare you do that? He produced fruit in his last moments. John was saying, don't give me this religious line. I am an Israelite claim. 
I go to synagogue. I went to bar mitzvah. Listen to what John the Baptist said. In Matthew 3, 8 and 9, he said this to the religious hypocrites of his day. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. No fruit, no genuine repentance, all fruit bears things that give glory to God and model holiness. Faith produces good works. He told these people, John the Baptist did in the very next verse, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees and therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what John the Baptist said. And he wasn't using hyperbole here. This is not some sort of fluke teaching that, you know, John the Baptist was trying to be a hard nose and trying to make the narrow way to heaven even more narrow. No. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said the same thing. In chapter 7, verse 17 and 19, he said this. So every good tree that produces good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on in chapter 12, verse 33, he said the same thing. And then again in 13:23, he said the same thing. And then again in 21:43, he said the same thing. And Luke says in Luke 8.15, where he records Jesus' interpretation of his parable, he says, but the seed in which the good soil, fell in the good soil, these are the ones who have, now listen to this, have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You hear the word, you hear it in an honest and pure heart, you hold it fast, and you bear fruit and keep bearing fruit. That is what it means to be a Christian. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are a Christian if you look at your life and you see sin, constant sin, constant rebellion against God. Just don't lie to yourself anymore. Because it's not true, even if you come to church. There is forgiveness There is love, there is grace, there is mercy, there is compassion for those who repent and only those who repent. This whole deal about God has a wonderful plan for your life, He doesn't if you don't know Him. His wrath abides on everyone who doesn't know Him. No, He has made a provision, Jesus Christ, who was revealed in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. He has made that provision. But unless you receive that provision in humble repentance and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and your King of your life, you cannot be saved, no matter how religious you are. And this is obvious This is obvious from the scriptures. There's so many scriptures that speak of this, it's not even worth trying to refute. The sixth line of verse 16 gives us the great climax of the incarnation and his mystery and work here on earth. The text says, he was taken up in glory. 
The first line talks about him coming down from heaven. And the last line about his going up to heaven. To that place where he was before with the Father. That place of ultimate exaltation and glory and honor. Where he now sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And he is to judge the living and the dead. By his appearing in his kingdom. He took his rightful place. He is sovereign now. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you need to either do it willingly now. Or you will be forced to do it later. Thomas Watson said. Christ has a golden scepter and a rod of iron. And those who will not bow to the one now. Shall be crushed by the other later. The great mystery of godliness is waiting for you. God's love is waiting for you. Forgiveness is waiting for you. A changed life is waiting for you. But it only comes when you are willing to repent and receive Jesus Christ and make him Lord of your life. And then there is eternal blessing beyond imagination. And all the things you need to live life for God here on earth in a way that glorifies him. The mystery of godliness is waiting for you, but you must repent. You must receive Jesus Christ. Do not delay. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning so thankful that your word has given us this great text. And Father, I know there are people here who don't know you. I know there are people here who have maybe professed to be Christians for a long time. And yet when they look at their life, it cries out, I am not a believer. When it's taken and compared to the mirror of your word, it's condemning, not encouraging. Father, may you grant every one of those people the mercy, the grace leading to repentance so that you might make them your children. Father, may they cry out to you. May they grovel. May they fall on their faces and plead to be saved, that you might change them, that you might transform them, that you might make them into new creatures so that all things pass away and all things become new. Make them your holy people as you have promised. Father, we appeal to you for we cannot... Save anyone, only you can. So, Father, do your work for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.